You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Podcast with Dante Belmonte, here to help you start or continue your journey in real estate. Each episode, we bring you a different expert real estate investor who will share the secrets to their success so you can learn and benefit from their experience. Let's jump right into it. Alrighty, folks, welcome back. Today, we have a super awesome, awesome guest. His name is Josiah Smelser. He's uh, an author. He's a podcast host. He's a real estate investor. I mean, there's nothing this guy doesn't do, it seems like. But today, we have him on the show, and we talk about Burr Investing, B-R-R-R-R. So we're going to break down what the infamous Burr is that everyone hears about and how it works and how we find that it you know benefits us to the best of its abilities. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome everyone back to the show. Today's guest is Josiah Smesler. I probably butchered that at the end there, but uh, I'll let you say it yourself. Josiah, <laughs> thanks for being on the show this morning, my man. You want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, happy to be here, Dante. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I live in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm married, got three children. And um, yeah, I love real estate. I'm an appraiser license appraiser, run my own appraisal business, and my passion is real estate investing. So I um, have my own podcast. It's, it's called The Daily Real Estate Investor. I'd love for everybody to check that out. And I also have a book that we can talk about later on if you want. Um, it's titled Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals. And uh, I really believe real estate's a way that people can really change their family's financial future and their kids and their grandkids and that kind of thing. So that's why I'm passionate about this. Really, my, you know, my, my goal with my life is just to help people um, live a free life and be able to do work they love. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's about it, man. That's great. And your book, Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals. You know, I read that. You sent me a copy of it. Phenomenal book. I suggest anyone to go pick that up, support you and give you a good review over on Amazon. Um, Thanks so much. So, Josiah, talk to us first off, how you got started in real estate and the real estate strategy you use, and then we'll use that to kind of tail off to the rest of the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so long story short, I got started as an appraiser. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, um, bought some properties, fixed them up, held them as rentals, and then sold them, did some house hacking. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with what house hacking means, it's essentially buying a house, living in it while you're renting it out, fixing it up. I did that. This was before bigger pockets. So I didn't know that term, but it's kind of what I was doing by default. So, and I always, I actually enjoyed investing in the stock market as well. And so I always felt like um, my real estate investments turned out better than my stock investments, even though I enjoyed stock investing. And so I just started noticing over time, if I'll just do more of this real estate stuff and less of the stock stuff, my money will multiply a lot quicker. Um, and, and then, so I went and hiked the Appalachian trail after selling all of my real estate in Fort Worth, which I actually wish I'd held on to that because, um, <laughs> <Nice market laughs> man, yeah, that market is doing really well. And that's one reason I went back and invested there afterwards, but, um, yeah. And so, so flash forward, you know, I met my wife, um, after hiking the Appalachian trail, went and got my MBA and I didn't own any real estate at this point. And I was still always reading real estate books, listening to anything I could on real estate, found bigger pockets podcast around that time. And, um, you know, fixed up primary residences, sold them, did well on those as well. So I was like, I got to get back into the investing game. And, um, meanwhile, I upgraded my appraisal license from residential to certified general. So I was appraising, I was the apartment specialist on my appraisal team. And, um, I did that because I wanted to own apartments one day and I always, I've always been kind of had this love for multifamily. I, I, I you know, I would drive, drive through these apartment complexes like, man, one day I want to own this. You know yep. what I mean? Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and so they, they put me on the, they put me on the mobile home parks and on the multi on the apartments. And so I drive through the mobile home parks and like some of them were pretty scary and I was like, hope I don't get shot here, you know? And then I, and I had some scary, really scary apartments as well. But what I noticed with these owners is the owners were raking it in. I mean, all of them. Yeah. And, and even the mobile home park owners that didn't even keep their books on a computer, who would just write stuff on a loose leaf paper. They would hand me their, their numbers and it would be like a stack of, you know, loose leaf paper they pulled off a, a pad and written stuff down on. These people were raking it in. And I'm like, 
if they have no systems in place and they're making this much money off this stuff, this seems like something that, that pretty much anyone could do if they just apply themselves. So I was like, what I want to do is I want to go back into real estate investing, build up a one to, one to four family portfolio, max out all of my available Fannie Mae loans. And I'm going to do that using the Burr strategy. And we can talk about that here in a second. But, um, and after we get that done, then I'm going to try to start going into multifamily and doing some multifamily deals. That's great. Yeah. And for those of you that haven't listened yet, uh, Josiah's two-part uh, two episode with Bigger Pockets is phenomenal. He gets to break down a lot more of this in depth. I mean, you probably had three hours worth of uh, <laughs> podcasting right there with those guys. Um, but yeah, just to touch on mobile home parks real quick. So obviously you got Mr. Peter Brandy over there, uh, Brian Murray, who's actually fairly close to me, uh, crushing in apartment buildings and commercial. They're doing mobile home parks and they're killing it. You know, I think they yeah. have 11 or, or 12 um, parks either under contract or they've closed on, which is phenomenal. And uh, the returns that they're projecting for the properties as well is phenomenal. So that's another, uh, it was kind of like apartment buildings, then self-storage and now mobile home parks are all starting to gain traction in that order uh, with yep. apartment buildings starting first. Self-storage is really starting to catch some space, uh, especially with AJ Osborne's book that just got released. And now... Brandon's bringing a lot of attention to mobile home parks, which I feel like is going to gain a lot of traction as well, but that's for another day. So moving sure. on. So you mentioned this Burr strategy. What is this Burr strategy you're speaking of? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've heard of that a lot. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a phrase that Brandon Turner of bigger pockets coined and the process has been going on for a long time, but this phrase is just super easy to remember. So it's, it stands for buy rehab, rent refinance and repeat and it's just it's just summing up the value add process so in a nutshell taking control of something that's distressed getting it fixed up getting a tenant in there and then re doing the refinance and trying to get your initial investment back so in a simplified yep. way that's what it is it, it doesn't always work as cleanly as getting all your money back but you can use this strategy to say i would say on average because we so backing up. So I had, I had a good friend to come to me that had a really good year financially. And he said, Hey, I've got a chunk of money. I want to own real estate. I want to own investment properties. You know what you're doing. Maybe we could partner up. And I said, well, I feel like I've got the hustle and the knowledge, but I'm lacking the capital right now. So yeah. let's, let's split this up. So what we did is we teamed up and I don't mind sharing this. Like people are always asking like, how do you structure this stuff? You can structure it any way that works for everybody, right? There's but no written rule. There's no written rule at all. So it's really kind of what the what all parties and interested want. And if you can find a common ground, you can and make progress, then go for it. You know what I mean? Yep. If, if the people are good people to work with, but so I, I pitched this idea to him. Like I'll handle all the, I'll, I'll find all the deals. I'll handle the financing. I'll handle the rehab. I'll manage the contractors. I'll handle the refinance, placing the tenant, literally everything. You just put the capital in. And we'll split everything 50-50 after you get your money back. And he was happy with that. And I said, I'm not going to take a penny out of this business until you've got all of your initial investment back. He was cool with that. And that allowed us to build this $4 million portfolio that we have. And it's about 20 properties. Most of them are single family. We've got some duplexes and that kind of thing in there. But most of them are in Fort Worth, Texas. And I bought in Fort Worth, Texas because I believe that market's going to really go up in value well. And it's also cash flowing nicely we've got a little bit over 200 bucks a door profit on each on average. So it's cash flow well, and the appreciation's really good. And I know that market really well. We did it in 20 doors. So the, our average property is worth $200,000. And you might say, well, that's kind of expensive. Well, we toyed around not with that the market. <laughs> we, yeah, not in that market, but we toyed around with the cheap stuff, you know, getting the $40,000 houses that rent for eight fifty or whatever. And man, we had so many headaches with it. And, it works great for some people, but by my math, I had to have, you know, I've got 20 properties. I had to have a hundred of those properties to have the same portfolio value. And I wasn't willing to do this process a hundred times because I also had this goal of buying multifamily at some point. So we went upstream and just bought more valuable deals uh, that would still cash flow and meet our, our hurdle, cash flow hurdle using this burst strategy. Yeah. And so, something I want to touch on real quick is the point of the Burr strategy is obviously because you don't want any money in this deal. You want to recycle that money. You want to obtain assets rapidly. And also you want to have good looking assets that don't have any capital uh, expenditure you have to worry about. Everything's taken care of. 
But the real killer is instead of going for 20, 25% down on all these properties, it's going to take forever to build a portfolio that way. You're able to be in a deal for zero down and have an infinite return on that property if you're able to pull out all that initial investment. Yes. Sometimes you can pull out uh, a plethora or more of that initial investment and actually pull money out tax-free. Or sometimes we leave a small amount, a small percentage in the deal, which still is maybe, let's say, 2 or 3% down technically instead of 20% down. Our return on investment, our cash on cash is so much higher. Um, so that's what people need to understand about this method. It's the dream method. Obviously, I'd never encourage anyone to start with one of these because you don't know anything if you've never invested in real estate. I, I think turnkey is the good way to start for your first property to understand how tenants work, understand how your property works, systems in place, and then jump into this. Because I always, I'm a real estate agent locally, I have the podcast. I always have investors coming to me that have never done a deal before and they're like, I'm ready to do a burr. I'm ready. And like, <laughs> I love the energy, but I would just suggest you start with something a little more turnkey and learn the basics first before you jump in and, and lose a lot of money. So that's, that's yeah. just kind of my two cents with burr. And also before we you know really dig into it, what you were saying is Burr has been done forever, but Brandon coined it not too long ago and it became pretty popular. Uh, my quote unquote, my mentor, the gentleman that first got me started in real estate, he, uh, I worked for him uh, like five or six years ago and uh, just doing something on the side. And then I started doing real estate and I didn't even know he invested in real estate. So he's from Israel. He came here with like $3,000 and he has like 170 units now. Wow. And uh so I'm talking with him one day and I'm explaining this burr method and he goes, uh, or I said the word burr and he goes, uh, Dante, uh, what is, uh, this burr method you speak of? <laughs> and, uh, I just explained to him and he's like, that's exactly what I've been doing for 10 years now. He goes, yeah. you know, I just, I've never even heard it as that he would just get private money, buy these properties that were just 20, 30, 40, $50,000. He'd put a hundred thousand dollars into them. He, they'd be worth like 200. He'd refinance all the equity, pay back the private lender, and he'd have a cash flowing property with zero dollars into it. And he would just continue to do this. That's how he's able to, you know, acquire so many assets rapidly. So that's sure. that in a nutshell. But, you know, Josiah, again, take it away. Let's start with the B, yeah. right? unless you have anything else before we start with breaking down no. the letters, you go right ahead. No, yeah, yeah. We can, we can dive into each letter of this. So the B stands for buy. So, you can obviously go about buying these any way that your numbers work, but some ways are going to work better than others. You know, some people go directly to off-market owners using, you know, mailers, using phone calls, using driving for dollars, you know, that's going bandit to be signs, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Bandits. On, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to find, to find stuff. We found that what, what worked best for us was going through wholesalers. Um, there's going to be people out there that are like, Oh, why would you leave all that money on the table? You kind of, kind of choose your battles with this stuff and figure out what you want to do and what you don't want to do. If you're really good at finding off market stuff, do it. You know what I mean? We felt like with our efforts, we were not getting the results we wanted finding the stuff off market. It, we were better served to go find wholesalers that were really good at that. We were happy to pay them as long as our numbers worked. Right. And so we bought the majority of our deals through wholesalers. I also bought stuff off the MLS because I'm also an agent. I have my broker license. I have access to all that stuff. The problem with most of the MLS stuff, see, I'm, an, I'm living in Huntsville, Alabama. It's extremely hot market here. Everybody's looking on the MLS. So right. it's very difficult to find a distressed deal that's got enough meat on the bone on the MLS to buy it, be able to do this burr process. That doesn't mean you can't do it. A lot of times the MLS deals that you find, they're, they're priced retail minus the work to fix them up. So in other words, if the thing's going to be worth 200 fixed up and it needs 60,000 of work, they'll price it for 140, right? right. So they there's no, there's no equity there at all to be had. Um, but what I've found is a creative way to be able to buy MLS deals is go in there and have some, some value add that's not obvious, right? So go in there and add some square footage onto the property. Maybe there's, there's square footage that can be con that could be converted to living space, something creative that everybody else isn't thinking about. That's ways you can take down MLS deals using the burst strategy and still be able to make this stuff work. Uh, but you got to think through it on the front end and you can, you know, that's not for probably a brand new investor, probably for somebody who's been doing this for a little bit, right. but we got most of our stuff from wholesalers. And I would say, I think on average, you know, our deals, like we, we would buy rehab, closing costs, holding costs, all that included upon the refi, we're at about 70% loan to value. So we would create about 30% equity on average. Now, 
I'll also tell you this. If you do this process, don't get discouraged if you leave 10 grand in a property. Because the way I look at it is this, like, let's say I, let's say my deal is worth 200. Um, I bought it for I bought it for 100. I put I put 60 in it. Okay. And it appraises for 200. And it's 75% loan to value. My debt has to be 150. Right? I, I had I was all in for 160. So when I close, I got to put $10,000 down on that. Here's how I look at that $10,000. The $10,000 you put in just created $50,000 of equity. So you just 5x your your $10,000. Now on top of that, you've got the cash flow the property is going to kick off. So let's say it's rented for 1700 and you're and you know, net of all operating expenses and debt service, you're making 200 bucks a month or whatever. So 2400 a year. So your 2400 divided by your 10,000 is a 24% cash on cash return. So you're getting 24% cash on cash. You 5x your $10,000 investment the property is being paid off. So you're gaining equity there and the property is going up in value. So it's not the end of the world if you leave a little bit of money in these things. So people think, oh, I didn't pull off a 100% burr. Well, you didn't get an infinite return on your investment. I'm sorry, but you, you're still beating the crap out of the stock market. And you average. still don't have 20%, 40 grand locked up into this That's property. exactly right. Yeah, instead of putting $50,000 into this thing, you put 10,000 in. So you got way ahead. So- yep. I wish people would get this idea out of their head that like, if I leave any money in the deal, this isn't a good deal. Cause I totally disagree. Like if you, if you built a portfolio of 20 properties and you put in 200,000 and those things were worth 4 million and that thing's going to turn into 10 million one day and you, you, all you put in was two, uh, 200,000, you're going to be very happy with that. I promise. Oh, that's a great investment. So, and yeah. uh, unlike the stock market, obviously you get, we'll call them dividend payouts every month. That cash flow, you get payouts. You don't have to sell that stock or sell that real estate to get that payout each month. Where exactly. in stocks, you would have to sell out. Yes, they have quarterly dividends in some stocks, but that's pennies on the dollar. Um, exactly. Anything, I, I look at it, anything with 15 to 10% or lower that's left in the deal after a burr, I find successful because I'm not tying up 20% or 25% of that capital on that deal. And yep. I'm not buying someone else's wealth by buying a property that's already has all the equity pushed out of it. I'm at, yep. I'm at a ceiling and I can't put any more equity in there because the market won't allow me to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it would be like a stock. Like the example I just gave would be like a stock. Right? It'd be mm -hmm. like putting $200,000 into a stock. The thing paying you a 24% dividend and then you hanging on to it for 30 years and it being worth 50 times what you paid for it. Now, people put $200,000 in stocks all day long, but they're not getting 24% dividends and they're not getting 50X on their money on average. There are some right. stocks that do that. They're really hard to pick out. You know what I mean? And but you don't know when to sell those. You don't know when to sell. <laughs> like the problem is you're, you're emotional. You see, the, you see the ticker price go up. You're like, oh, I just made 10%. Maybe I should sell. You know, or you see the price go down. You're like, I just lost 15%. I need to sell this before it goes to zero. You don't take that 30 year ride in the stock market. Whereas if your real, your real estate's not flashing a price in front of your face every day. And so you take, you take the longer ride, you hang on long-term and that's how you get wealthy in real estate is buy and hold. Yep. And I think this is a good time to tell us the story of your stock investment. You mentioned in the book, <laughs> uh, if you want to go ahead, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I was, I used to teach finance. I was a finance professor for a couple of years on the college level, really enjoyed the job. But I really, I really wanted to build my own business, and that's why I left. But, um, but anyway, while I was there, I was looking at stocks a lot, and I found this stock that I really loved, um, and I put sixty thousand dollars in this thing. And this thing, I mean, this stock took off like a rocket ship. I mean, it was, I bought it at seventy cents, and it was, um, I had two hundred fifty thousand dollars in like three months. So I went from 60 to 250,000 in like three months. And all the analysts were saying, you know, this stock is going to quadruple from here, if not, if not 10, 10x from here, like in the next year. So right. I was looking at, I was looking at being a college professor making, you know, 70,000 a year and making a million dollars in the stock market in one year. You know what I mean? And I was thinking, if this make if this goes to a million, I'm literally gonna sell this thing and just go buy real estate or whatever. Well, guess what happened? The thing went right back down to where I bought it. And uh, oh, man. yeah, and it didn't go straight down. That would have been too easy for me because I would have just sold, right? It went down and went up a little bit, then went down, then went up a little bit, and went down, went up a little bit. And Stab. every time yeah, every time they Damn. would say it's just a <laughs> yeah, they would say it's just a correction, you know. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm so, I'm so up on this thing. I'm just going to ride it out. Well, it went all the way back down to where I bought it. I sold it and it continued to go down from there. So uh, I checked it the other day and it's back around where I sold it. So for that entire roller coaster ride, I got absolutely nothing. And of course you're saying, well, why didn't you sell when you had 250? Well, it's easy to say that in hindsight, right? Like, of course, right, when I you know the emotion that. tied in. Yeah. And when you know the end, like, you know, the story, yeah, you're going to sell it to 250. But when you think it's going to be at a million, just as easy as it went to 250, you're like, why would I sell right now? I'm losing 750 grand over that decision. So I just learned like the stock and the, and the stock, this is the thing that killed me. The stock had great fundamentals. That's why I invested in it to begin with. And I realized that the stock market is so irrational because it's traded on, you know, Warren Buffett calls it irrational exuberance, right? Yep. The market, the market can stay, uh, let's see, what is it? The market, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. It's what they say. Mm -hmm. So like the, the emotion that stuff is traded on the stock market goes up and down so much that it's detached from the fundamentals a lot of times. And to me, like real estate, you make an investment based on the fundamentals of that property. And typically the results are going to follow the fundamentals you invested on. If those are sound, you're going to do well. If those are not sound, you're going to get burned. But I did not find that same correlation in the stock market. So I was like, I'm just going to go all in on real estate. And if I buy stocks, I'm going to be in uh, index funds that are diversified, like yep. Vanguard ETF index funds. I'm not going to try to stock pick anymore. And something I find funny is I was, you know, a few months ago, I was doing some calculations and I did them again a few days ago is I'm super young. I'm 22 years old. Uh, back a few years back, I started a Roth IRA and I'd max it out at the, it was a 5,800 two years ago. Now it's 6,000 and I'd max it out. And yeah. so Love the Roth IRA. Yeah, it's great. So I looked at the account and I was like, all right, I'm averaging about six to 8% right now in ETFs mm -hmm. through Vanguard. You know, it's great. So I pull up a Roth IRA calculator. I was like, all right, let's say I'm going to, I'm 22 now. I'm going to continue to attribute $6,000 per year. Uh, let's say, you know, we'll, we'll say 6% average returns until I'm 59 and a half. The number that came up was like a million something. I was like, that's it. Like you want me to give up six grand every year, yeah. let it invest. And I'm only getting like a million something at this age. It's crazy. Yeah. I, know. I was like, I'm going to go take that money. I'm going to go put it in real estate. I'm going to get tax benefits. I'm not going to pay tax on Not that you have to pay tax on a Roth IRA, but I was just comparing left and right. And I was like, this makes no sense. So yeah. that's yeah. why we exercise this and we'll get back into it now. But going back to be, to buy something you were saying, let the wholesalers do the hard work. You know, yeah. if, if that's not what you're good at, let someone else do it. And if the deal makes sense, then go buy it from them. Who cares what they're making? Who cares if they bought it? As long as it works for you, it works well. And yeah. second off, going to the MLS, being an agent, we have access to some great tools, honestly, that they provide us. Um, what my burr I bought, one of my burrs I bought, I bought off the MLS. Mm -hmm. I went to expired listings and I saw this one property on the same street, I already owned some other property was listed and it was expired and it got relisted. I was like, all right, well, no one's touching this thing. Let me see what I can do. Listed at 75. All right, here's an offer for 35 cash, no contingencies. Let, let's wow. do it. Uh, no, that's not going to get done. The agent goes, is like, I don't care. It's not your decision. Just go present to the, you know, the seller. All right, all right. He presents it. All right, he came back at 50. I go, nope, I'll do 42.5 final offer. Seller says, all right, let me sleep on it. Wakes up, calls his agent. His agent calls me. All right, well, let's do it 42.5. You know, that's an example of it's listed up here at 75 doesn't mean they're going to take 75. Sometimes they can take lower, not encouraging anyone to go on here and just rate a hundred low ball offers. That strategy is great, but that could, <laughs> could affect your name a little bit. But if it's a property that's been sitting for a long time, they obviously want to get rid of it, especially if it's vacant too. So give it a shot. Um, that, that, you know, that's what I have to say on, on the buy side. And obviously we're looking to calculate, we're starting with the ARV up here. Then we want to look at a 70% of that. So we leave that 70% for a buffer if we're doing a 75% loan to value or 80% loan to value. So whatever that 70% is, that's what we want all in to be at. So now you need to figure the repair costs from there and then that's your purchase price. So that's how we approach that buy. And Josiah, if you want to take it away, put in anything yeah. else on that as well. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, and, and the reason 70% would be good to your point is because of the buffer. You don't know what it's going to appraise for on the back end. You can do your homework and you can have comps nailed down, but you know, a number of things can go wrong with the appraisal on the back end. I'm an appraiser and I, I want to talk about the rehab part of this since we're on that letter, but real quick, 
you know, when you look at a deal that you're buying and then, and then six months down the road, you're ready for your refinance, there's going to be new comps by then. Right. Yep. So that's one thing you can't control is what's happening in the market during the time in which you're rehabbing before your refinance and your appraisal. So you need to have fresh comps. Like I would have recent comps like the last three months because you know, in the, in six months, if you're finished, those things are going to be nine months old and they're still going to be looked at. If you're using comps that are from a year ago, six months from now, an appraiser is not going to consider those. They're going to be looking at comps within the last 12 months. So just a tip there to help you get through the refinance part, not be really shocked by your appraisal. Um, but on the rehab, when you're calculating your cost, what's best to do is back into your numbers, right? Say, okay, I believe this is worth 200 based on these comparable sales. And here's another tip. If your high comp says this is worth 200, don't say the property's worth 200 because, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because guess what? The appraiser places the value off of the second highest comp in their data set, right? Yep. So I'm not saying it can't appraise for 200. It depends on which appraiser you get and how they go about doing their work. But and how happy they are that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's some salty appraisers who just come in very conservative on everything. It drives me absolutely crazy, and I am an appraiser. But um, you know, let's say your high comp is 200. Your second highest comp is 195. I would base your ARV off 195. If you if it comes in at 200, you'll be pleasantly surprised. But it keeps you from having this issue of your value coming in way low and you having to come up with a bunch of cash you didn't expect, right? Yep. Okay, so on the rehab, you wanna back into your numbers. So let's say the thing is gonna be worth 200. We wanna be at 70% loan to value. So you're gonna take 0.7 times 200. So you're gonna be at 140,000 all in. Then you're gonna have to back out your rehab cost, your holding cost, um, and your, you know, I, I include the, re, you know, the refinance cost in that as well. Yep, the closing so, cost and refinance. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, and those are some hidden costs that people don't think about. Don't just look at the rehab cost. Consider the holding cost. If this is costing you 800 bucks a month, interest only to hang on to. And then, you know, there's, you're going to be paying utilities, things of that nature. Factor all that stuff in and then factor in the cost of the, the refinance. Refinance may cost you $5,000. That's going to be money coming out of your pocket. So roll all that into your rehab number and make sure that, you know, the thing's going to be worth 200. I need to be all in at 140. My rehab, my holding costs, and my refinance costs are going to be 40. So I need to buy this at 100 or less to be able to hit this number. And with, like you're saying, with holding costs, taxes, insurance, like you're saying, interest payments on private money, if you're doing that, um, closing costs, those are all things that need to be, you know, thought of like I was on the bigger pockets forums and someone was like, what do you mean by holding costs? You bought it in cash. I was like, property taxes don't go away. Insurance doesn't just yeah. go away. You know, the closing costs, they don't just wave on that all that all mm -hmm. are, you know, there are things that happen. So sure. What we were saying, you know, that 70% for that buffer and what you're buying it at. So let's talk about rehab costs that can add some value to the property more than, you know, just painting the place. Yeah. Uh, personal stuff. I like, spicing up your bathrooms and kitchens with some tile floors instead of just running a laminate through it. Um, it's going to be more durable. It's going to look a little better. Um, I'll let you go with some more, Josiah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the way I approach rehabs is I always look at what my highest and best, the highest and best use of my dollar. Right. Yep. So that's, you know, that's an appraisal term, the highest and best use. You always want to know what the highest and best use of the property is or the land. You want to know what the highest and best use of your investment dollars are as well. And so it's going to depend, right? Like if you buy a, a C-class $40,000 property, you know, that's worth 75,000, it's going to rent for, for 800 or 850 or whatever. You're not going to want to probably go put granite, stainless steel, hardwood floors. You don't want to over-improve it, right? So in that kind of property, I would look at, you know, durable, affordable flooring. I would look at, you know, um, Formica countertops that look nice, but don't cost very much probably black, you know, appliances that are cheaper, something that's going to, that's going to be less, that's going to be cost efficient. It's going to be, you know, tenant proof, if you will. Yep. That's um, but it's going to, it's going to hold up well. When I say tenant proof, I said that the other day and somebody's like, what do you mean tenant proof? Well, you want to <laughs> fix up your, your rental properties in a way that's going to, they're going to last um, and take a lot of, a lot of uh, wear and tear from the tenants in there. So, I mean, some, you'll see some landlords, they'll put, LVP throughout their entire property. So they don't have to, to repair, you know, replace carpet all the time or, um, you know, or they'll have concrete. I've seen some with concrete floors that are polished, you know, it's not very warm. I don't do that with mine, but 
you know, um, hard surfaces are going to hold up a lot better than carpet and stuff will with tenants. But, you know, I, I know one guy who owns properties, he doesn't put ceiling fans in anything. He just puts those, those, uh, kind of like bulb looking lights in every room yep. and, uh, the, um, the man, boob lights. Sure. yeah, 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 the, yeah, exactly. We call uh, them the, put, boob lights. <laughs> the boob lights. Yeah. He put, he puts those in because those things don't break like ceiling yeah. fans. Like if a kid hangs on a piece of that and breaks it off, they're calling you to come fix it, you know, and so it looked disgusting with all the dust on them too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, uh, but like if you're higher end, like, you know, from an appraisal standpoint, things that I see that create a ton of value, um, that maybe don't cost a ton more than, than the next thing down the line, like granite versus a four mica countertop. Like you may be able to get a cheap piece of granite for $1,500 Four mica may cost you 800 bucks. So for an extra, you know, 700 bucks, you're, you're getting a rent premium of 50 to a hundred bucks a month. That's a really good return on investment to me because that thing's going to pay for itself quickly. Uh, another thing is like, to your point, fixing up bathrooms, bathrooms and kitchens are things that really add a lot of value to homes. Um, because that's what, that's what people look at most when they come in. So new paint inside is always going to go a long way. Fresh yes. flooring is always going to go a long way. And I, I think light and bright is always good. Like if it's light, fresh, bright, and feels inside, more open, it feels clean, bigger. feels more open. That's another thing. Removing a wall that's closing off the house and making it feel very confined also uh, that also can add a lot of value because people now feel like they have a lot more space so it may it may cost you 500 bucks to tear a wall down and open the whole thing up and that may that may bring you a tenant that will stay a lot longer because they like the feel and the flow of the of the space and they can utilize the home more where they exactly they say, oh, yeah this is closed off I, I can't stay here you know we just yeah. took down four walls in one of our properties and it was like this isn't yeah. the same house at all. Like yeah. this is, yeah. I can see the staircase into the living room, into the dining room, into the kitchen. It was like yeah. before I couldn't see the living room from the staircase. You know, it was sure. just something like that. Um, yeah. I, I find tile backsplash in the kitchen can, if you can get it cheap and do it right, it mm -hmm. just adds a little bit more of appeal. And that's not something that'll break the bank. I mean, you can do a tile right. backsplash depending on where you get it from and how you get it installed for very cheap. You know, yep. it's not something that's going to cost you thousands of dollars. But Absolutely it does clean up that area. And like you said, kitchens and baths, that's where these properties sell. There's only so much you can do to a bedroom because there's walls, there's floors, and there's a ceiling, you know, you can't yep. add this much to it. Um, but yeah, you know, please go right ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's good. And you know, again, it's going to depend on the quality of your property, the neighborhood your property's in, what's expected in that neighborhood as far as amenities. And so like we bought B class. All of our stuff is pretty much B class. So it's a step up from run of the mill kind of C class neighborhood stuff. It's a little bit nicer. We get a little bit better rent, and we have tenants that want to live in those type properties who are going to like who are going to like granite and stainless steel, and we get to charge really good rent for that. And so what we found is, hey, we're paying an extra seven hundred bucks for granite. That's worth it because our tenant's going to pay a lot more to get a property with granite. In fact most of our tenants aren't going to want to rent our properties in this neighborhood if they don't, if it doesn't have granite. So right. we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You can't use that rule of thumb in a C-class area because they're not going to expect granite. So if you go put granite in there, you might get a little more. I don't know. You might not. So it's right. really Depends going to be in your market. Like, you know, Dante, as, as an agent, what I would do, I would try to go in and see some other properties in that area that are rentals that are in average condition and see what they look like. And if, if they're, there's no granite, there's no stainless steel and they're renting for eight fifty a month and there's some same size and bed bath count as you. That's a good indication that you could get eight fifty a month for yours or more in average condition. So like, right. look at, look at your comps, look at your comparables. And, and that's what I'll do. When another property goes on the market in one of the neighborhoods I invest, I may not even have interest in buying it. I'll go see it because I want to see yeah. what the competition is doing. I want to see what other properties are looking like and what they're doing and what quality of work they're using. Cause there gets to a price where or a point where you can price yourself out of the market. You start yeah. doing crazy stuff to a rehab and you see no return on it. And sure. something you were saying, you know, the Formica versus the granite and you know, it's a great return on your investment. Uh, hating Crabtree, a gentleman I had on the show, uh, author, a great guy. He was also talking about, and I really like what he said. He goes, we're not going to do anything or add anything to our properties that don't bring additional value. If it's not a 25% return on our investment. Yeah, that's good. You know, for, for example, he was talking about uh, building storage units on an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. If we can't get, you know, 
pre-leases or, or, or prepaids from the tenants to, before we build those. And we know it's not going to be at least a 25% return on the investment to build it or more. We're not going to really entertain it. And I think that's pretty good too, because you got to calculate, you know, I bought a property for X amount and I went in and I said, okay, if I redo the floors, paint the moldings and, uh, you know, do, do a few different things, what is my additional rent going to be if I do those things? How much did it cost me? And how much more rent can I add? So it cost yeah. me $5,000 to redo these floors and do some painting. I was able to bump the rent by $250. We'll just say 200, that's 1200 a year. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, do the math. That's just yeah. shy of 25%. That's, that's worth it. You know, I'm able yeah. to, and a higher quality tenant sometimes at that point too, when you raise the rent and raise the amenities, you're going to get someone that's looking for a higher class experience. Yep. Uh, and you know, that's, that's my thought on that. Yeah. Um, going over to the rental side of things, we obviously want it rented before refinance to show the bank or the lender stability or the property stabilized. Mm-hmm. I mean, your thoughts on that. Yeah. So something that's interesting on this subject Fannie Mae, when I did, we've, we've got 20 with Fannie Mae. Well, I think we've got 18. We've got two with an outside lender. But when I did my refinance, Fannie Mae did not require that we have these rented. Hmm. So the old requirement was that they would be rented, but Fannie Mae is now doing them with, they pull, they'll, they will pull market rents. And, you know, this is, this is being recorded July, (laughs) July of 2020. So, you know, check with what's going on when you listen to this, because this can change. But like we had some that were rented, <clears throat> most were rented, and we like having them rented because we can now show what our property is going to rent for. But, you know, some we did, like we were refinancing 10 deals in March and April of this year, which was the 100% the worst time to do this. We refinanced these at that time because our hard money and private money lenders wanted their money back uh, kind of on a dime, you know, it kind of, they kind of said, Hey, the markets are, are close. You know, the markets are coming to a halt. We need to get our money back. We're concerned. You're not going to be able to refinance these. So I had to go refinance them <laughs> to give them their money back, which was precisely the, the worst time to do that. But it was, I, I had no control over that. So I just right. did what they were asking me to get them their money back during that process. Fannie Mae said, Hey, you don't have to have these rented to refinance them. So, uh, the refinance part of the, um, or the, I'm sorry, the rental part of this whole thing, you want to get them rented. So you know what they're going to, they're going to bring in. Uh, we use third-party property managers for most of ours. We manage some of our own. Um, and we use, I think it's, um, is it Rently? We have some service that we use that the tenant signs up for at auto deposits there rental payment into our bank account. And we save nice. that man, we save that management fee. But, um, you know, I live in Huntsville, Alabama. Most of my portfolio is in Fort Worth, Texas. So we have a third prop, uh, third party property manager out there. We negotiated a lower rate than 10% with him because of how many properties we have. He's done a phenomenal job for us. And he, uh, we had 100% occupancy and 100% rent collection throughout this whole COVID thing. Uh, which has been phenomenal. Like I didn't yeah. expect that in my wildest dreams to have that kind of success, but I'm very thankful for it, but he's done a really good job. So I'll say this, we've gone through some bad property managers to get to where we are. If you have a bad property manager, get rid of them as fast as you can, because you're going to be experiencing a lot of grief and spending a lot of money for them to not do their job well. And there are good property managers out there and finding a good property manager will help you maximize the rent on your properties as well as minimize headaches. So if they're not doing those two things, you need to get rid of them. And, and your wealth, your company's wealth is directly correlated to their actions and, and how they manage your properties. They're managing your portfolio. Absolutely. They're managing your wealth, honestly. Um, go, go into the R again for rent. Sometimes the reason why we do rent these properties is so we know what kind of income we're bringing in. We can think we're going to rent the property for $1,800, $1,900 all day, but until we actually have a tenant in there that's going to sign a lease for that price, we don't have that number. So let's say we have it advertised at $1,800 and we just cannot get $1,800 in this market. Maybe we can only get $1,500. Well, now that's going to directly affect your refinance as a fact that let's say the property appraises for $220 instead of $200. And dollar signs, dollar signs, you know, you go to pull out 80% loan to value. You're like, oh, I can pull out all this money plus more. You know, I can pull out money tax-free. 
Not necessarily, because now the mortgage is going to be higher on the property. And if your rent's lower and your mortgage is higher, you might be only breaking even or actually losing money each month. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good good to know what your property's going to rent for. It's very important. On the front end, if you're like, well, I don't know what this is going to rent for, you know, there's some ways you can check market rents. Um, there's one called, I think it's Rentometer. You can get yep. on rentometer.com, enter some information about your property. It's going to give you a range. Zillow's obviously got their rent estimate that you can check out. Not always accurate, but, um, and neither is Rentometer, by the way. Rentometer could tell you your property is going to rent for 750 and you, you can get 900 for it. So like, don't, don't take any of these metrics as your 100% true answer, but what I try to do, just because I'm an appraiser and I, I pull market rents for a living on appraisals, I look at where the property is and I look at kind of bracket that property by a couple blocks and then I look and see what's rented in there and, and recently. And so if I've got three rental properties within, we'll call it a quarter mile of my property, all within 300 square feet of my, my property size, they're going to give me a dollar per square foot rental range. Okay, so I'm going to note those and then I'm going to go in and look at the amenities on those properties. If one of those properties has been fixed up and it's bringing a dollar five a square foot, and the other two properties haven't been fixed up and they're bringing 85 cents and 90 cents a square foot, I'm going to know that my fixed up property is going to likely bring a dollar five a square foot somewhere around there. So I may, I may say, okay, I'm, I'm running my rental numbers at a dollar a square foot with the upside that this could go up to a dollar 10, maybe, I don't know but I'm not going to price them down at 80 cents a square foot because that stuff hasn't been improved and I would be pricing myself too low. So that's kind of how I pull rental comps on the front end. And then once it's done, I typically start my, and there's different strategies on this too. I typically start my rentals out at the higher end of where things have been leased. So I, I'll, I'll maximize my rent, but it's not higher than everything else out there. And, and if I don't get a lot of bites, then I start lowering it, you know, pretty quickly. Right. What's happened a lot is that it rents out pretty fast though. So, yeah, I mean, if you have brand new renovated properties, they're typically going to rent a little bit quicker because they're someone of higher quality and they're newer and people yeah. like living in new construction, so to speak. Uh, I think that's really good. Now going over to the refinance side, you're the guy to ask this question because you're in a appraiser. <laughs> so obviously with larger apartment buildings, five plus units, all that good stuff, the value is, dictated on the NOI, the net operating income, and how the property performs. Do you guys ever take an income approach to these small multifamilies or are they based off of purely comps? Is it a combination? And I know it's a question I get all the time from investors. Is yeah. When I go to predict this property value, if I bump the rents up by 20% each unit and it's a two unit, is that gonna increase my property value? Touch a little bit on that, Josiah. Yeah. So when you say small multis, like what, what size are you talking about? Uh, two to four. Yeah. So the one to four family space, you're still dealing with investors that aren't really sophisticated, right? You're dealing with mom and pop owners. Mostly the first thing mom and pop owners look at is dollar per square foot. Um, and so a lot of times the sales comparison approach is the primary thing that's given weight. An appraiser worth their salt is going to note the rental increases and, and try to find comparables that have similar rents going on. And that's going to give them a good idea of what that property is worth. A duplex is not going to be looked at the same way as a 50 unit apartment complex. They're not going to, going to just look at the income, have an expense uh, operating expense ratio, and then cap the NOI for the value. They're not going to do that. Like I wish they did that, right. but they don't, they don't, they don't do that. They're going to look at, what things have been selling for per square foot around that area. And truly a property that, that has uh, a similar rents should be and, and similar amenities should be selling for similar per square foot. It should be. That's not always the case. Sometimes your property may have higher rents uh, than another one, but this other property, you know, I don't know. There's so many little nuances that you can get into but it's not just based off the, based off of the income approach. They're going to look at the sales comparison approach. So I think the safest thing to do when you're planning out your ARV on these one to four families is look at sales comps. Then also look at, if you're looking at a, a duplex, triplex or fourplex, look at income comps as well and try to try to find something that's supported both by sales comps and by income comps. 
if your value is just based off of income, but all the, all the sales per square foot are in this lower range, you're, you're probably going to be disappointed in what, what happens with the appraisal value. Yep. So like be realistic on the dollar per square foot sales of those properties as well. Cause, cause other people, other investors are buying those properties per square foot at those rates for that same income. So you got to think about that. Right. Yeah, no, that that's, that's huge. And, uh, and another thing you got to think about is the reason why they're coming in with these appraisals at these numbers is the bank is protecting themselves. The lenders protect exactly. Them. If they need to take back this property, they need to say a few things. One, the reason why we're doing a loan to value is that way we're not in it for you know 100% in the the buyer so to speak or the refinance or is in it for zero percent. So now when we go to sell this property, we're just about upside down in it, and we have to sell it at market rate to get every penny back, and that doesn't that's account right. for holding costs. Um, so that's why we have the loan to value aspect of it. The second thing they're looking at is obviously comps because they want to make sure that they're, they own that property for 80 or 75% of that loan to value amount. So they have that cushion so they can go and sell it instead of selling it for that hundred percent value. They can say, okay, we own it for 75% of the value. Let's sell it for 80% of the value. This thing will go quick. Someone will eat it up and it's not going to stay in our books as bad debt. And looking at the income approach as well, they're also thinking, and this is more sometimes towards commercial lenders. Um, cause I do a lot of commercial lending on small multis. They're looking at it as what if we have to take this property over? Can we let it run as a business as itself? They look at each property as a business sometimes. And they say, you know, for those of you listening and asking if the lender has to take it over, even if you don't have property management on it, you should still be calculating with property management numbers because that's how a bank's going to uh, underwrite it. If it's commercial lending and also, one day you don't know something could happen and you have to hire property management on it. If you don't account for that property management and let's say, you know, you're, you're sick, you have to go into the hospital or something and you need some of the care for the property that can make or break a deal that could negatively impact your cash flow per month uh, and, and how much you're doing per door. So that's the way you have to look at it. You have to look at it in the lenders and the bank's eyes as well, not just your eyes. You know, you can't get so excited and say, you know, well, this is going to work. This is going to work. This is going to work, you know, and push it on them. Anything you do like that on an appraiser or an underwriter, they're, not going to side with you at all. They're just going to get annoyed really. And they're going to kind of push you off. Um, so that's how I always look at it from a lending standpoint is I try to look at it from the bank's point of view, because at the end of the day, the one you want the relationships with the lender, the banks, they're, they're making or breaking this deal for you. They're holding the whole thing down. And then that brings us to the last R repeat. So once we pull out that equity from the refinance, we want to now take that money, pay back our hard money, our private money lender, Hey, here's your return. How'd you like it? Let's do it again. You know, go find another property. We're going to, instead of repeat, I almost want to say recycle because you're just recycling those funds off to the next one. I mean, Josiah, talk a little bit on that because I know you're constantly doing that and that's how you built such a phenomenal portfolio to this day. Yeah. Yeah. The, the repeat process was, was really opened up for me when I figured out how to remove the bottleneck in my business. And so what you need to do is sit down and document your whole process and, and ask yourself, what's the one thing that's keeping this from really exploding? And what I documented my problem was, was capital. Um, I can find the deals all day long. Um, now I've got a different problem. Now that I'm working on multifamily, I'm having trouble finding the deals. And I actually have the capital. So different problem, different, different thing I'm working on. But with the one to four family stuff, I could find the deals. I just felt like, when my money went in a deal because I was putting X amount down, it was being kept in there until I could get my refinance done and get that money back. So the way I removed that bottleneck was I was using hard money to buy the deal and I used private money instead of my own money to layer in on top of the hard money so I could take the deal down with none of my own capital. I kept my capital in reserves to make the interest only payments, to pay any unforeseen you know, bumps in the road that kind of thing. And also kept it for my refinance in case my appraisal came in a little low and I had to leave 10 grand in a property. I've got money there, right? You don't want to do this without any reserves. If your appraisal comes in low, you don't have any cash to finish your refi. You're screwed, right? So don't do that. Um, but so what I did is I layered in private money for the equity piece and, and that opened everything up that allowed us to go a lot faster. So, and, and the way that worked was, I'd, I'd buy the distress deal with hard money. They'd require, they, they did 90% loan to cost on the whole thing. So I need another 10%. I would get the 10% from a private investor. Ten, you know, they knew I've got this first loan in place. 
I've got the, and they're going to be the second. But, but see, the, the beauty of this is it's at a 75% loan to value. So even the second lien is in the property with 20% equity above their loan. So they know that if this thing goes sideways and we got to take this property back, they could sell it. At, if they sold it at market value, there would be, their loan would be paid off. The first loan, the second loan would be paid off and there's 25% money left over. So they're going to get their money back. So they're comfortable with this. You have to find somebody that's comfortable with what you're doing to make this happen. But anyway, the layering in of private money on top of the hard money made it possible for me to repeat and take this capital buy four or five deals at once, have these things all going on at once, get my refinance done, get these guys paid off, then take this capital and go do more deals. Yeah. I mean, it's great. And something that, you know, people will tell you different ways about this approach, get the deal, then get the money, get the money, then get the deal. I mean, you'll hear it back and forth, back and forth each way. Um, for one of my deals, I was pretty confident I could get the money. So I just put it under contract and to get the money, you know, I went to my lender that I was going to refinance with, and they had a hard money program basically that I was able to just use them for it. They zero underwriting. You, you just basically give them your EIN number for your business. They, they already knew me whatnot within a day. I went to the bank and picked up a check for the the full amount for the purchase of the home and half the rehab costs. That's where well, I am. Yeah. I mean, it's a phenomenal program and you don't know until you ask, no one advertised that to me. I went to all my lenders and asked them, I said, do you guys do any, you know, low lending, you know, high interest rates, short-term lending? No, no. Yes. Okay. Perfect. I would have never known if they didn't ask. So I encourage right. everyone on here, go ask. So that helped me out with the uh, purchasing the, the asset and for some of the rehab costs. And then I had a decent chunk of more rehab costs that I needed. So that's where I went to private lenders. You're going to get so many no's and that's going to happen, especially in your first one. Luckily for me, it was my third one was a yes. You know, I approached two individuals. Oh, think about it. No third individual. It was a two sentence email. The reply was, all right, let's do it. Let's start with this amount. Perfect. Okay. Awesome. Let's go for it. So now I have this combination again of capital, hard money, private money. I'm able to put in this deal and make it happen. And I always like doing a little bit of my own money sometimes just to show the private investor that I've got some skin in the game. Sometimes in the beginning, I think that's a, a real good key to show them you have skin in the game and use some of your own funds down the road. Once you prove yourself, you don't have to do that, but you, you know where I'm coming from with that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be hard to convince a private money lender to give you money if you're not experienced, right? So right. The, the, the way I was able to get the money I had is because they, they realized I was experienced, they felt confident that they were gonna get their money back and they did. Um, but if you've never done a deal, good luck trying to go get somebody to lend you a bunch of their private money when you don't know what you're doing because they don't wanna lose their money, you know what I mean? So- uh, Right, they need to see it's, results. It's gonna get a lot easier for you to get private money as you get more experienced. Um, but private money is a really great way to do a lot of things in real estate that you're going to be having a hard time, harder time doing if you're going the traditional banking routes because of just the time it takes to get everything processed. So your, your example of going to them and then giving you hard money, basically like, that's awesome. I've never even heard of a bank doing that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so like, if you can find somebody like that at a bank, man, I would, I would ride that all day long because it's, it's and this more, was a local credit union, right? Right, local credit unions, um, and local credit unions and smaller banks locally are really good to start off working with because they're more relationship based than some of the bigger ones are. So, but anyway, yeah, I mean, uh, that's what opened it up for us. But just figure out what'll what'll open it up for you, and then try to take that money and recycle it and continue to do deals. And I look at it like I look at it like a stock portfolio, you know. Some deals I'm going to get all my money back and then some, and some deals I'm going to leave a little money in, but I look at it as a long-term investment. And when I'm getting more than 20% on my money, I look at it as, well, what's my opportunity cost? Well, my opportunity cost is putting this in an ETF and getting 8% a year. So I'm coming out 12% ahead on this cash and it's going to 50 X for me instead of maybe 10 X or whatever. And so I'm happy with that. So figure out what it is you want and, and what's going to meet those criteria and then go for it. Right. Yeah. And just to touch back on what you're talking about, that 8%, depending on how you have it set up, that could be tax deferred or tax free. When exactly. we're talking about, and something to just touch on this refinance point, when you're pulling out this money from that refinance, it is tax free. Mm -hmm. So when you're, you're pulling out this money, there's no tax on it. There's no capital gains. There's no uh, regular income tax. You're not paying any gains on this. So that's exactly. what's so important. That's why it makes this investing strategy so entertaining you know and, yes. and, it, and it makes it such a way that 
and again, one of my buddies, David Dodge, he does the Burr Method a lot. He actually wrote a book called The Burr Method that just came out last month that's sitting right here. I'm getting ready to read it. And he, he's phenomenal. He, he just, he says a way to require a rap, uh, assets, a large amount of assets rapidly is with this method. And that's how mm-hmm. you can do it. Because again, we're going back to traditional 20, 25% down. How long is it going to take you to build up your, your savings, your funds for 20 to 25% down and put that into the next property? and use your regular income versus the rental income to get that 20, 25% down to do it again and not be able to put equity in the property. So that's why we stress this burn method so much, so much. Yeah. Um, Josiah, did you have anything else to say before we move on to the next section of the show? Um, and if you do, please go right ahead. I don't want to stop you. No, I think that's good. I, I, I would just stress that don't think that this burst strategy is going to always 100% give you all your cash back. You're fooling right. yourself if you think it will, or you're in a market that's not appreciating at a, at a rapid clip. You know, as, as the market becomes higher quality, your ability to get all your cash back on the refi is going the probability of that's going to go down. So if you're buying in Nashville, trying to do the burst strategy, it's going to be harder to get all your cash back than if you're buying in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yep. So, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't buy in Little Rock. It's just telling you your rent ratio is going to be better in Little Rock. You're going to more likely get all your money back on your deals, but the appreciation rate may be lower. So there's, it's kind of a sliding scale with that. Yeah. And it's, it's just like any other sport you're practicing. So as you do these burrs, it's going to practice till you hit that home run. Uh, you yeah. know, they say it on bigger pockets, those base hits. If you're leaving only 10, 15% of a deal, you know, it's the first, second base hit. You know, if you're leaving under 10%, you're at second, third base hit. If you're getting all that money back, you know, it's, it's a home run. If you're able to pull out more money than you put in and it still cash flows properly and it appraises higher, that's a, you know, a grand slam. It, it, it all works out. It all adds yep. up and all those base hits add up to, you know, a point. So awesome. Let's uh, head over to the curious cues. So I'm going to throw some questions at you and I want sure. you to answer them. Uh, first question, favorite podcast. Ooh, favorite podcast, man. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I, that's, that's like asking me what my favorite food is. I mean, I can tell you like my favorites, you know, but I love eating and I love podcasts. Um, I love eating while listening to podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, I love eating while listening to a podcast. Man, I I mean, I've got a couple. I'll just tell you a couple. Yeah, go favorite. for it. I, of course, love Bigger Pockets. I mean, it changed yeah. my life. So I got to throw that one in there. Um, and I was on Bigger Pockets. I'd love you to check that episode out. But um, man, another one I love is Gary V. I, I listen to Gary V. He gets me pumped up. I love how he just picks apart these, these limiting beliefs we have, you know, and I just think he's awesome. I think he's so motivational. So I really love Gary Vee. Also love the Village Church podcast. Matt Chandler's their minister. I listen to that. Like when I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, I would load my my iPod up on Village Church podcast and just listen to that. It was a way for me to spend some time with God. And you know, Village Church, you said Village Church. Yeah, Matt Chandler. I used to go to church there. The best church I've ever been a part of. So spiritually uplifting and encouraging. And Matt Chandler is man. He is like one in a million. Like one of the best speakers and motivators I've ever heard in my life. So I listen to the Village Church podcast too. So yeah, I would say Gary V, the Village Church, Bigger Pockets, and of course I like Tim Ferris on occasion. Yep. Um so yeah, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of my like. Yeah, there, there's a lot out there. It's hard to keep up with all their weekly releases for everything. Yeah, it really is. Uh favorite book you've read. Favorite book on business or just in general? In general, whatever you're feeling, business, real estate, spiritual self-development uh i mean mm. we read a I mean, lot my, of books it's tough yeah I, I read a ton of books i love reading and so it's really again really hard for me to say i, I would say if i had to say just pick a book out as my favorite it'd probably be papillon Absolutely. uh yeah and there's a movie about this as well but it's an adventure book it's a true story about this guy who was wrongfully imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit and he's and he basically got shipped off to these labor camps on these islands. And um, this guy was an escape artist. He escaped. They'd catch him and put him in prison. He would escape. They'd catch him eventually. They put him back in prison. And he escaped like five or six prisons that no one had ever escaped. And at the end, I don't want to give it away. Just read the book. It's awesome. It's like prison break. It sounds like <laughs> It's like prison break, but it's way better. Like, I mean, and this is a true story. The coolest book I've ever read. When I was on the Appalachian Trail, 
I took this book with me and I gave it to one of my friends and he read it and he was like, this is the greatest story I've ever read. <laughs> so I'll check yeah, that out. Check that book out. Good. Papillon. It's awesome, man. Okay. Uh, biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. Mindset. Mindset's mm. 100%. I mean, I say 100, it's probably 99% of your problems. And yeah. that's why we have this book. You that's right. Wrote. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. So good. It's, I love that. It's mindset, man. I mean, and I'm struggling with it again. I'm working on apartments now and it's, it's again, I'm hitting this wall of like, well, what am I capable of? Well, can I do this? I see these other people doing this. Can I do this? It's the same way with one to four family. You, when you don't own any real estate, you're going to listen to these podcasts and you're going to hear these people that have $4 million portfolios and, you know, just did this big deal and that big deal. And you're going to be like, well, that's nice for them, but I don't, I'm not able to do that. And that's totally untrue. It's just that you haven't gotten your mind to that place where you believe you're capable of it and you haven't started trying to solve the problems that will allow you to be capable of that. So a lot of times it's, it's opening your mind up to the possibility that you could actually do it and then starting to work on the problems that are keeping you from doing it. Like you can't do it without any knowledge, right? Right. So you got to build the skill sets to be able to do that stuff, but you can't build the skill sets without having your mind open to the possibility that you can do it. Yep. It's all about that mindset. Yeah. Very good. Favorite part of investing in real estate? Uh, man, the financial freedom it brings. That, I mean, yeah. that's what I'm in it for. I, I, I believe my, my life's purpose is to make a, a positive impact on the world. And that comes from a, a faith standpoint. You know, I'm a Christian, I believe. And I, I try not to ram this down people's throat on my podcast. I want them to, I don't want them to be driven away by my beliefs and stuff. Um, but you know, I believe my life's purpose is to help others that are in need and whatever form or fashion that is. I believe I've been given some gifts with business and I can take money and multiply it. And I want to use the fruits of that in large part to help a lot of people. And so that's kind of why I'm doing this. Like it brings financial freedom for your family, but after a certain point, like it brings in so much money that you can take the money and really help a lot of people that are hurting in the world. Yeah, that's great. Favorite non-real estate related hobby? Uh, man, I'm, I'm a big fantasy football guy. Um, okay. and I like that from the strategy standpoint. I also love playing PUBG on Xbox. So that <laughs> that's well. awesome. Yeah. You, what, what else are you playing on Xbox? Just PUBG? Man, that's about it. I got really into PUBG. I got really competitive at it and I'm like super, super competitive. And so when I, when I play something and I, I lose, it just fires me up to go try it again. So I put a lot of time into getting good at PUBG and I'm like, start, you know, if I play something else, I'm starting back over. So. Right. It, it's like, uh, there's this one meme where it's like a skeleton and it's like, it's like 2 AM after they die. It's like, where are we <laughs> dropping boys? You yeah, know, it's exactly just like right. yeah. that competitiveness. We're like, oh, we got to go again. Yeah, um, it's exactly right. I'm a big, uh, Halo guy. Love oh, cool. Halo. Yeah. Halo it looks guy. fun. I mean, I, I looked at that game the other day. I'm like, this could be a lot of fun. So yeah, you let me know, man, I need someone okay. to play. I'm getting lonely okay. over here. Um, <laughs> That's great. I love that. PUBG. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Newbie advice. So is some advice you give to someone who is looking to get started. I think you got to decide what you want to do. Do you want to own a few properties or do you want to do this on a, on a large scale? If you want to do it on a large scale, you're going to have to like immerse yourself in learning and this whole process. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like if you wanted to play in the NBA whether you had the skill set or not, if you wanted to play in the NBA, how would you approach that? Would you go out and shoot for 20 minutes a day? Or would you go out and shoot for five hours a day? You know what I mean? Right. There's a difference there. And so you're going to get those results that are correlated with the effort you're putting in. So if you want to own five properties, you can do that pretty easily with not that much time involved. Just save some money, go buy a property, get it rented out, save some money, go buy a property. It may take you four or five years. It may take you two years. If you want to be a real estate investor with like life-changing income and wealth and you want to do it quickly, you're gonna to have to really immerse yourself in all this stuff. So I would say like figure out what it is you want and then figure out the effort you're gonna to have to put in to make that happen. Yeah, that's good. And where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'm right now working on buying apartments. So Lord willing, start taking some of those down, create more financial freedom for my family. I'd like to be a, an, uh, an apartment syndicator. I'm working on starting a multifamily podcast um, called the Multifamily Mavericks. I ha haven't launched it yet. Yeah, there we go. Joe Fairless. <laughs> I love that book. Uh, I love I love Joe Fairless. I actually like his podcast a lot as well. Um, 
but yeah, so I, you know, I'd like to be a successful apartment syndicator. I plan to be. So that's, that's where I see myself. Awesome. I love it. Josiah. Thank you. Thank you, man. So much for coming on the show. I love chatting with you. You're awesome guy. Great amount of knowledge. Where can people connect with you, talk to you, possibly even invest with you? Yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me again. It's, it's been awesome. I love, love being on your podcast. I'd love to have you on my podcast as well. Um, people can connect with me. It's easiest to connect with me on my Instagram page. It's at Daily Real Estate Investor. It's all spelled out. Feel free to send me a direct message. I'll try to respond. And also my email address is on there. If you've got you know, a deal you're working on, I'm not interested in one to four family deals. Just go ahead and throw that out there. I've already got, I've already got that done. That. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't think they're good. I do. I just, I'm not buying any more one to four families. So I don't want to let people down if they have something in that space. I think it's worth working on though, but I'm, I'm laser focused on apartments right now. So really right now I'm looking for 30 to 100 unit apartment complex deals in, in the Southeast, primarily Southeastern states. So if you've got something that you think generally fits that criteria, man, send it over and let's connect even if you don't. So Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor. My podcast, current podcast is called the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. And then the book is titled Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals. And it's been sold out on Amazon. You can get the Kindle version there. You can also get the physical version on BookBaby. If you look up Book Baby, you can find it on there. If you can't find the book, shoot me a message and I'll help you find one. So, Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Loved it. Yeah, man. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you took something away from today's episode. For more information, you can find us on Instagram at Dante Belmonte. See you next time.